You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Steven Pinker. This program originally aired in 2019. I'm Peter Biello, and today NHPR and the Music Hall in Portsmouth present Writers on a New England Stage with author Steven Pinker, recorded live at the Music Hall. Here's Pinker as he stepped on stage to talk about his latest book, Enlightenment Now. Thanks to all of you for coming. From time to time, we all ask some deep and difficult questions. Why is the world filled with woe? How can we make it better? How do we give meaning and purpose to our lives? Well, as imponderable as these questions may seem, many people have answers to them. For example, morality is dictated by God and holy scriptures. When everyone obeys his laws, the world will be perfect. Or, problems are the fault of evil people who must be shamed and defeated. Or, our tribe must claim its rightful greatness under the control of a strong leader who embodies its authentic virtue. Or, In the past, we lived in a state of order and harmony until alien forces brought on decadence and degeneration. We must restore the society to its golden age. Well, what about the rest of us? Many people know what they don't believe in, but have more trouble putting their finger on what they do believe in. In Enlightenment Now, I suggest that there is an alternative system of beliefs and values the one that we associate with the Enlightenment, namely that we can use knowledge to enhance human flourishing. Many people embrace the ideals of the Enlightenment without being able to name or describe them, and as a result, they faded into the background as a kind of bland default or establishment or status quo. Other ideologies have passionate advocates, And I suggest that Enlightenment ideals, too, need a positive defense and an explicit commitment, and that's what I have tried to do in Enlightenment now. Let me conclude with three questions about progress and Enlightenment that I'm sure have occurred to many of you. First, isn't it good to be pessimistic, to speak truth to power, to to rake the muck, um, to avoid becoming complacent? Well, not exactly. It's good to be accurate. Of course, we must be aware of danger and suffering and injustice wherever they occur, but we also have to be aware of how they can be reduced, because there are dangers to thoughtless pessimism. One of them is fatalism. If you really think that all of the efforts to make the world a better place have (coughs) led to nothing, a natural response is, well, why waste time and money on a hopeless cause? Why throw good money after bad? As Jesus said, the poor will always be with you. For that matter, if you think that we're doomed, that if climate change doesn't do us in, then runaway artificial intelligence will, then uh, the natural response is, well, let's just enjoy ourselves while we can, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Let's let our grandchildren worry about it. The other danger is radicalism. If you think that all of our institutions are failing and beyond all hope for reform, the natural response is, well, let's smash the machine, drain the swamp, burn the empire to the ground in the hope that anything that rises out of the ashes is bound to be better than what we have now, or to empower a politician who promises only I can fix it. (laughs) Second question, is progress inevitable? And the answer is, of course not. 
progress does not mean that everything gets better for everyone, everywhere, all the time. That would not be progress. That would be a miracle. And progress is not a miracle. It's not magic. Progress consists of using knowledge to solve problems. Problems are inevitable, and solutions create new problems that must be solved in their turn. Also, the world faces uh, severe challenges that have not been solved. Foremost among them are uh, climate change and the threat of nuclear war. I argue in Enlightenment now that we should treat these as uh, problems to be solved rather than apocalypses in waiting, that we should deal with climate change by decarbonizing the world uh, uh, energy economy as rapidly as possible by a combination of policy, uh, particularly carbon pricing, and technology, namely the development of low, uh, zero, and eventually negative carbon technologies. We should deal with the threat of nuclear war by um, enhancing international stability so that the chance of an accident or a misunderstanding or a miscommunication are minimized, and by an aggressive program of arms reduction, culminating eventually in the total abolition of all nuclear weapons. My final question of the evening, does the Enlightenment just go against human nature? Uh, an acute question for me, because I am an outspoken defender of the idea that there is such a thing as human nature. And so I face the uh, objection that maybe humanism is just too arid or tepid or flattened to get people's uh, blood pumping. Um, is the conquest of disease, famine, poverty, violence, and ignorance boring? Do people need to believe in magic, a father in the sky, a strong chief to protect the tribe, myths of heroic ancestors? Well. I don't think so. Uh, for one thing, secular liberal democracies are the healthiest and happiest places on earth, and they're the prime destination of uh, people who vote with their feet. And I dare say that applying knowledge and sympathy to enhance human flourishing is heroic, glorious, perhaps even spiritual. It's not just a myth. Myths are fictions, and this one is true, true to the best of our knowledge, which is the only truth we can have. And it's a hero story that belongs not just to one tribe, but to all of humanity, to any uh, creature with the uh, ability to flourish and the power of reason. Thank you very much. That was author Steven Pinker, recorded live at the Music Hall. Pinker then sat down with me for an interview before a live audience. Well, Steven Pinker, thanks very much for being here for Writers on a New England Stage. This is amazing. Thank you. And thank all of you. Yes. I want to start by asking you about democracy. You use democracy and the spread of democracy in Enlightenment now as, as a measure of progress. Uh, so the argument for democracy, I think, is one that uh, sadly needs to be made in public a little bit more often. So can you talk a little bit about why democracy in itself is a worthy measure of human progress, as opposed to, say, for example, a benevolent dictatorship? Just empirically speaking, people do better under democracies. Democracies are less likely to go to war with each other. They're less likely to host civil wars. They're less likely to host genocides. They have uh, higher rates of economic growth, holding constant where they, uh, where they begin. 
Uh, and people are happier in freer countries. If you look at the uh, determinants of happiness, uh, measure uh, properties of a society that lead people to actually say that they're happy and who could be the better judge, the, the biggest one is prosperity. Just uh, you know, money can buy happiness. Uh, more developed countries are happier. But the second factor, the second most powerful factor is uh, freedom. People who sense that they are free and people who live in countries that are freer uh, are happier. Uh, and even as our own uh, uh, framers and founders put it, why, uh, how can you even justify the existence of government, which is basically a, a, an armed force, a force that wields violence. Why do we have a government unless it governs with the consent of the government to give people the opportunity to pursue life, liberty, and the, and the pursuit of happiness? The opposite of democracy just consists of really of people who will may claim to be benevolent, may start out benevolent, but given human nature are likely not to be benevolent for long. We need a democracy to keep them benevolent, in other words. Exactly. There needs to be a nonviolent way of um, deposing people, uh, leaders who are not so benevolent, or at least not at, in, in the eyes of uh, the people that they're governing. Okay. I don't have too many political questions, but I do have some. And I wanted to ask you about the various ways in which both the right and the left diverge from or divert from um, rational thought. Both sides do it. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the ways they do it and whether or not there are any similarities or key differences. We all as humans have a tendency to fall into ideological or political tribes where uh, we filter evidence so that we uh, accept the evidence that confirms our beliefs, where our beliefs tend to be those that are shared with the people that we live with, that we work with, that we identify with. We screen out evidence that disconfirms our beliefs. Uh, we tend to uh, give greater weight to being accepted by our fellows, having the same opinion that, that they do, or at least the one that is officially endorsed, than to calibrate our opinions against the, the best current evidence. Uh, and, there, and one can spot irrationalities on, on both sides. On the um, si side of the, uh, on the right, for example, perhaps the most salient current example is uh, human-made climate change and the uh, very real threat that it could lead to um, negative, indeed catastrophic uh, uh, outcomes accepted by the vast majority of uh, scientists but denied uh, systematically by people on the political right, largely because, if true, it would call for uh, greater government intervention in, um, uh, in the economy, and since that is unacceptable, therefore climate change can't be real. Uh, this is kind of a backward way of, of reasoning. But also in, in economics, the idea that uh, lowering uh, tax rates will increase revenue so much that governments will run a surplus the um, dogma that economic growth cannot uh, take place if there is our environmental regulations, uh, that if we were to protect the environment, then uh, the, the economy would, um, would stagnate, whereas, uh, as I show in the book, since the formation of the Environmental Protection Agency, the uh, American GDP has increased by two and a half, population has uh, almost doubled, the uh, number of miles that we drive have has doubled, but the rate of emissions of the uh, five major air pollutants has declined by 
So it, it's not true that you have to, to uh, choose. On the part of the left, there is uh, a, uh, a, a strange unwillingness to acknowledge that the, uh, globally the most effective way to lift people out of poverty is through markets, through capitalism. Uh, that's why China uh, had the most spectacular growth, uh, reduction of extreme poverty in human history when they switched from totalitarian uh, communism under Mao to a free market under uh, Deng Xiaoping. Likewise, when uh, countries like India and Vietnam liberalized, uh, they showed uh, huge increases in prosperity. Or even if you just compare countries like um, East Germany and West Germany, North Korea and South Korea. Uh, Chile and Venezuela, where you can more or less hold constant geography and culture, uh, it, it, capitalism just works better. And that's not, for some reason, that really sticks in the throats of people on the left. At the same time, there is no such thing as a system that is purely capitalist in the sense of a minimal night watchman state that does nothing but enforce contracts and keep up an army and a police force. Every developed country engages in redistribution, including the United States, and an average of 22% of uh, gross domestic product is, is redistributed. The it just kind of matters how, how they redistribute. Yes, and different countries do it in different ways. Oh, and for that uh, matter, this is actually, again, more of a, um, uh, I think, of an irrationality of the libertarian right than, than the left, but the idea that if you had a uh, increase the social safety net, strengthen the social safety net, then it is a slippery slope toward uh, you know, Venezuela or Maoist China. Uh, if you have increased uh, uh, safety regulations or uh, environmental regulations, then that's the, the road to serfdom. Uh, empirically, countries that have a lot of market freedom, like Denmark and, and uh, New Zealand, also have pretty extensive social welfare systems. Mm -hmm. uh, then also, on going back to the, to the, uh, the left, um, the belief that genetically modified organisms are uh, a risk to human health, which is, is total nonsense. And more controversially, I, I argue in the book that the opposition to nuclear power on the part of the left is uh, a, a major reason that we are not on track to deal with climate change, because nuclear power is our most uh, abundant and rapidly scalable source of zero carbon uh, energy, that the uh, health and safety risks are um, massively overblown compared to the data, and that's a kind of irrationality on the, uh, on the left. So what can be done to combat the irrationality, not just within ourselves as we become more mindful of the arguments that we're hearing and the arguments that we're making within our social groups, but is there something we could do, like say for example, um, mandating in, I don't know, middle school, high school, even college, critical thinking courses that can teach young people how to spot a straw man argument, for example. Is, is that something that might help in your view? It, it, it might. I, 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 the reason I say might is that, as I discuss in the book, um, you have to apply critical thinking to critical thinking uh, courses. <laughs> and uh, sadly, most of them don't have much of an effect. Uh, However, that, that is, you give people tests of critical thinking before they take the course, after they take the course, not much of a difference, especially uh, you know, a, a few months or a few years out. However, applying critical thinking to the critical thinking about critical thinking courses, uh, we now know that you can improve ways of teaching critical thinking. Part of the reason that the results of uh, critical thinking courses have been so dismal is that when you measure the results of just about any course, 
they turn out to be pretty disappointing. And I have to <laughs> confess that as a... Says uh, the professor. Uh, says the, yes, as a university <laughs> professor, yes. Uh, that uh, you know, a year from now, I really don't know how much psychology my psychology students will retain. But what that means is that, however, we do know from uh, both from cognitive psychology and just from empirical studies of educational uh, efficacy, that there are some ways of teaching subjects that really do stick. Uh, and, and others that don't. And the problem is that the first generation of critical thinking courses did not use state-of-the-art uh, pedagogy. If you have a uh, you know, professor yammering at the blackboard and a textbook that students highlight with a yellow marker, those are both quite ineffective compared to, for example, having uh, students think through problems in uh, arguments with each other, uh, having them recast and rephrase, explicitly pointing out how a lesson from one example can be generalized to a new example. Anyway, these are all ways in which I think the power of critical thinking courses can be improved. So the overall answer to your question is yes, as long as we think critically about critical thinking. And aside from the, the critical thinking and critical thinking about critical thinking, would it just be... Um wise to, to educate ourselves and to look inward and to use another Voltaire reference, tend to your own garden? Is, is that yes, the idea? Yes, indeed. So part of the of critical thinking can't just be spotting logical fallacies like the ad hominem fallacy and affirming the consequent and leaping from uh, correlation to causation. <clears throat> but also uh, political tribalism and cultural tribalism has to be recognized as a major form of irrationality, that each one of us, indeed, as you, as you know, has to recognize that if we reflexively come out with the left-wing position if we're on the left or the right-wing position on the right or the libertarian position if we're libertarians, that is, uh, it's highly likely that we'll be wrong because we're probably endorsing it for the wrong reasons. Hmm. Now, of course, it doesn't, it doesn't mean, of course, that all positions are, are wrong. Right. Uh, some libertarian positions might be right, but they, uh, it's too easy to give them a pass if you are a card-carrying libertarian and so on if, uh, for the left and for the right. That has to be recognized as a major source of irrationality in all of us, not just the other guy, but our, our own side too. I'm Peter Biello, and this is Writers on a New England Stage with author and psychologist Steven Pinker. Stay with us. We'll be right back after a short break. I'm Peter Biello, and you're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with author Steven Pinker. This interview was recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. I spoke with Pinker about his new book, Enlightenment Now, in which Pinker makes the case for optimism in today's world. I want to ask you a little bit about um, the media and how news organizations cover things that happen in the world. Totally agree with you when you say you have to be accurate. But I have a question about terrorism and how we cover terrorism. Because in your, in your book, you, you rightly point out that terrorism works in part because the media is there to tell people all over the world that something very dangerous and bad happened in a specific place. And we also know that the odds of being killed or harmed by a terrorist are very, very low. In your book, you say the media needs to think carefully about how we cover terrorism. So I wanted to ask you, should we, aside from thinking carefully, change the way we cover terrorism? And if so, what should that new way be? Yeah, I think there should be less saturation coverage to terrorist attacks uh, and rampage shootings, since both of them are ways in which malevolent actors jerk around the media. I mean, they, why do they do it? Especially um, you know, suicide terrorists or rampage shooters who know that they're going to die in the, in the act. 
um, they, they do it because they, there's nothing, nothing in it for them uh, other than the publicity, uh, perhaps in the anticipation, at least in the case of ones who know that they're going to die, but that, that can be enough. There's for uh, nobodies, it's a way to become a somebody. It's the only, the only guaranteed way to become famous uh, is to kill a bunch of innocent people because uh, you know that you'll get saturation coverage, sometimes including publishing the killer's manifesto and reproducing pictures of him posing in, in battle garb, uh, uh, often I think a particularly uh, toxic and idiotic journalistic formula is to trumpet the fact that, that this is a, a record in the number of people who are killed in one shooting. Uh, that this, this, uh, this shooter has now killed more people than anyone in the past because now some sicko out there is thinking, oh, gee, I bet I can break that record. Uh, it's not particularly newsworthy. I mean, it's, it's not like uh, uh, sports where we, we, we uh, have to keep track because the whole point is to keep score in sports. Um, and uh, the, the saturation coverage that's given both terrorism and rampage shootings uh, uh, increases the likelihood that they'll be repeated. We know that because they tend to occur in clusters. Mm -hmm. One will give rise to copycats. So can I ask you about that word saturation? Um, because I, I think what you mean is that when it happens, something like Las Vegas, for example, it's almost every minute of, of the broadcast day. Um, so are you saying we should scale it back to maybe one short story about it, not name the perpetrator and not name a body count? Um, I, I think that the, the the body count probably has to be uh, has to be mentioned, but certainly there should not be it shouldn't be set up as a kind of uh, um, you know Guinness Book of World Records type competition. Uh, there is an argument for not naming or showing the face of the perpetrators, and one might say, well, isn't that an infringement on freedom of the press? And that has to be taken seriously. Is that an argument you endorse? Uh, it is, and the, the reason is again, even even though I am a, quite a committed civil libertarian and press freedom advocate, but there are other policies of calculated restraint uh, in the media. For example, not naming rape victims—that's right. just a policy. No one, no one really misses it. Not identifying perpetrators uh, that are uh, that are juveniles. Uh, a, a simple example is in sports coverage. Uh, a couple of decades ago the major networks decided to no longer train a camera on fans who run onto the field. And uh, because the only reasons that fans run onto the field is so they can you know, say, hi, mom, and, and uh, 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 mug in front of uh, an audience of millions. Once networks made the decision to just not point the camera that way, fewer people ran onto the field. Now, of course, you know, I, I think it would require some thought, and again, any policy of media self-restraint has to be thought through so that it isn't a, uh, a precedent to impingement on, on press freedom. But I think there can be better guidelines, including calibrating coverage to the, uh, to the damage, the fact that we have that every day in the United States there is a sandy hook and a half of uh, ordinary police blotter homicides. Uh, we should be aware that there's a much greater risk of being killed um, in, in an, uh, a road rage incident or a, uh, a fight among jealous lovers or a barroom brawl than, than a, a shooter or a terrorist. Um, and uh, the, the, as part of the background, um, there should be uh, a, a statistical context that says this number of people died in the past five years from terrorist attacks, this number of people died in uh, homicides, this number of people in, in accidents. 
Um, and that, that does change your priorities. I mean, I myself was, was shocked when I saw the graph that I presented earlier on the uh, deaths from accidental poisoning when I mm -hmm. first appreciated how major a story the opioid epidemic is. Right. That is not an example of something that is given too much attention uh, because those, those are real, real numbers. Mm -hmm. We got a question from someone in the audience that I will modify slightly um, related to what we're talking about, which is how does accurate and I would say positive news stories get attention in a negative world? How, how, how would you suggest that they get attention, these positive well, they, stories? They, they should be covered in the, in the first place and perhaps even covered with, with uh, headlines, like in, uh, when there's a major advance in democracy, such there, there's, there was in uh, Armenia a, a couple of months ago. Um, that, uh, or the signing of a peace treaty between Ethiopia and Eritrea, which, uh, I mean, it was covered, but uh, didn't get a lot of coverage beyond the day that it, that it happened, where uh, a conflict that had killed 100,000 people has kind of come to an end. But another whole, there's a whole other approach, which could be to cover the world in which in the way in which newspapers already cover things like uh, the, the markets and sports. Namely, there are uh, daily uh, updates of the data, whichever way they go, up, down, or no change. You don't just read about your team losing. Uh, you don't just read about your team winning. Win or lose, there it is, and the standings are there. Likewise, the, the markets, the commodities, the stock markets, currency markets, and so on. Kind of a dashboard of how the world is doing. And I think there should be more coverage of when, when homicide statistics are released, uh, when um, carbon emissions are released deaths in war. Uh, there should be more dashboards where we see how the world is, is uh, doing. We need to lighten up a little bit, I think. Yes. And, I, and I have a question about robots that might yeah. help us do that. You didn't talk about robots earlier, but you did talk about robots in your book. And there, there's a community out there that really thinks that artificial intelligence is going to get so smart and so independent that it's gonna rise up as one and either slay us or subjugate us. And you think that's not true. And the way you write it in the book is, frankly, it's hilarious. It's really funny. <laughs> I really like that. But can you, can you talk a little bit about the robot apocalypse that is probably not gonna come in your yes, opinion? Yes, the, uh, the, the robo-apocalypse or the AI takeover. <laughs> it comes in the, the fear, putting aside one form of dread, which is that the robots will take all our jobs. So let's put that aside, because that's, that at least is within the realm of you know, ordinary cause and effect as opposed to science fiction. Um, but the, the, the two varieties of the fear, one of them is that um, just as we dominated uh, animals and drove many of them to extinction because we're smarter than them, uh, when artificial intelligence gets smarter than us, it'll do to us what we did to the, uh, the, the whales and, uh, and, and, and dolphins and snowy owls and so on. Uh, a, a, a different uh, worry is that because the goals that we program into artificial intelligence may not be the goals that we ourselves uh, have, uh, they could run amok and in single-mindedly uh, achieving some goal, run, run uh, rampant over us and do us in as collateral damage. Mm -hmm. So as one um, scenario is if we were to uh, give a artificial intelligence a goal of maximizing paperclip production, it will uh, turn all of the matter it can reach into paperclips, including us. Uh, 
or if we uh, instruct it, give it a goal of curing cancer, it, since curing cancer is the only thing that it's trying to do, it will draft us as involuntary guinea pigs in fatal experiments. Because mm -hmm. uh, you said to cure cancer, and that's, that's how yeah. we I can cure cancer. Now, I, I think that these, each one of these fears is um, really based on, I think, a very poor analysis of what intelligence is. Uh, the idea that uh, as things become smarter, then they will want to dominate us confuses the <coughs> uh, concept of intelligence with the concept of, of dominance. That it just so happens that they come bundled together in uh, Homo sapiens, in more so in one gender than, than another. Uh, <laughs> that, uh, but that's just because we're, we're products of natural selection. The same uh, process that made us smart also made us competitive, because natural selection is a competitive process. But uh, unless we design a system to amass resources and to uh, uh, prevent itself from being turned off and uh, maximize power, uh, it's not going to do it spontaneously. If you've got uh, the, the, the program that um, uh, beat the world champion at uh, Go and at chess has shown no particular uh, tendency to take over the lab or to, to wreak havoc. Uh, <laughs> You know, like, or, or the, the, the program that, uh, the, the Watson program that, uh, that, that uh, won a Jeopardy. I mean, it's just not running amok. There's no reason <laughs> that it will. And the, the, the so-called value alignment uh, uh, crises, uh, I think, are, are, are internally contradictory. It implies that an artificial intelligence would be so brilliant that it could cure cancer but so stupid that it wouldn't realize that that's not what we meant by curing cancer. Yeah. We would likely build safeguards if we were to build we something like that. Any, every technology has to satisfy multiple criteria. Uh, when you have a car, it's got an accelerator pedal, it's also got a brake pedal, and it's got seat belts, and it's got a steering wheel. Uh, the idea that there'd be a technology that would only do one thing and that we should therefore fear it strikes me as uh, assuming that AI will be developed unlike any technology that ever has before that is with no regard whatsoever to, to safety and efficacy. It'll, it'll never be uh, even tested to see what, what will happen. Now, there, there's a fear, well, what will happen is the AI will be so intelligent that it'll improve its own intelligence, and that will make it smart enough to improve its own intelligence even faster, which will cause it to uh, defeat our attempts to uh, keep it in a box because it'll be smarter than us. Any safeguard that we implement, it'll be smart enough to, out, to outsmart. Uh, and that'll happen so fast that we won't even be able to test it. It'll just explode in a kind of comic book uh, foom. Uh, that is just not how any technology works, including artificial intelligence, as seen by the fact that the, those uh, self-driving cars that we've all uh, been told to expect um, are, are still not going to happen anytime soon. I'm Peter Biello. And this is Writers on a New England Stage with author and Harvard professor Steven Pinker. We'll be back after a short break. I'm Peter Biello, and you're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Steven Pinker, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. I spoke with Pinker about his new book, Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. While we're on the subject of tech, we got a question from someone in the audience uh, who wanted to know, what do you think social media's impact has been on human progress? Well, it's only uh, Facebook is just celebrating its 15th anniversary, so it's a little hard to tell. I think social media now are being blamed for uh, 
all the world's problems and uh, that, it's, that there's a great deal of um, hysteria and derangement about social media. So that, then, that blame is not well placed in your view? I, don't, I think it's not well placed. It, it doesn't survive fact checking. The uh, uh, idea that uh, social media is ru are, are ruining a generation, that, uh, that, that young people are um, depressed in record numbers, are uh, uh, suicidal in record numbers, uh, doesn't, doesn't hold up. The um, idea that uh, even the idea that the, that um, uh, Russian bots uh, um, altered the 2016 election is not so clear. And an analysis by a political scientist uh, named Brendan Nyan um, at uh, well in, uh, at Dartmouth, I think, here in New Hampshire, mm -hmm. uh, noted that, that a tiny fraction of the messages that uh, ricocheted around the social media spheres in 2016 were fake. Uh, of those, a lot of them reached people who are going to vote for whoever they were going to vote for regardless. So if you send a conspiracy theory about uh, Hillary Clinton to someone who's going to vote for Trump in the first place, then it really doesn't have much of an effect. And very, and very, few, people, uh, very few people's minds were changed by the fake news that was sent around the internet. So when you actually do empirical studies of what the effects are, as opposed to imagining worst cases, uh, I think the, the uh, fears are overblown. So the idea that social media will be the death of democracy, it's a kind of hyperbole that, uh, that I've um, become quite jaded to because op-ed columnists uh, often reach for hyperbole as, uh, as their own means of amplifying their uh, virality. Mm -hmm. So saying that it's not tearing down society is one thing. Uh, would you go so far as to say that it is adding anything to human civilization? Is it, is it contributing to progress or at least human happiness? Um, I, it, um, you know, it, it depends on which, um, uh, which people do you look at, which um, platforms. Uh, it's I want to know which platforms you think are, are yeah. making people and, happier and which, than others. Well, uh, a couple of studies of uh, Facebook have shown that, the, that uh, um, in moderation, that is, if you're not spending uh, every waking hour on them, then they, it does make people happier. They feel more connected. Uh, one of the reasons that it makes people less happy is that they are more aware of the misfortunes of uh, people that they care about. Which is the opposite of what we hear. We hear that we look at social media and we see everybody doing so superbly well, unrealistically well, and yes, that yeah. makes us sad. Yes, because everyone's having fun, but but uh, but me, uh, it seems. And that, that, that at least the studies that I found at the time that I wrote uh, Enlightenment now did not confirm that. Likewise, in if you look at the amount of um, psychological. Uh, um, stress among users of social media, especially among teenagers, it's kind of a, a bit of a U-shaped function, that, that an inverted U, that is, that there's probably an optimal amount that the ones who don't use it at all are less happy. The ones who are completely consumed by it are also less happy. So there's probably a lot of subtleties like that. And since they are so new, um, the, any new technology tends to uh, incite a, a moral panic. This had happened with television, happened with radio, happened with telephones, happened with mass market newspapers, happened with book publishing, where everyone uh, fears it when it first appears. Um, and sometimes there is a, a period in which there, there can be damage and harm until societies develop countermeasures and safeguards and immune responses to try to um, 
cap the worst effects while enjoying the, uh, the benefits. So the idea that we'd all become zombies and, and uh, no one would uh, ever uh, have a family dinner again because everyone would be eating TV dinners, um, staring at the screen, that was a fear of the 1950s, <laughs> that we'd never have a conversation again because everyone would be plugged into their Sony Walkman and with, uh, would have uh, their, their earphones and not be able to uh, uh, speak to anyone. All of these turned out to be overblown and I suspect the worst fears of uh, social media will also turn out to be overblown. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you about wealth inequality because the way it's discussed in popular culture, um, among some groups anyway, uh, is that wealth inequality is inherently bad. That if, if there are super, super rich people, that is bad for society. Um, so I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about wealth inequality and whether or not it is inherently bad for society. Yeah, I think the, um, and there are separate questions about wealth inequality and income inequality yes. uh, as well. Uh, you know, I think there are problems of uh, uh, plutocracy, the, the possibility of the rich people uh, parlaying their wealth into political influence. I don't think that making uh, super rich people a little less rich is going to solve that problem. I think that we've got, uh, my, my general approach is that if you've got a problem, try to solve that problem. Don't try to solve some other problem that you think is the root cause of the problem facing you. Solve the problem itself, treat the symptoms. And if the problem is uh, uh, undue political influence, then we've got to make political uh, contributions more transparent, uh, have uh, caps on them, perhaps um, uh, override um, uh, Citizens United, look at the electoral process at the vulnerabilities to influence by money and zero in on them. But if we keep a system in which uh, political contributions can have an undue influence where they can be hidden, then uh, making so- someone whose who's net worth is 50 billion uh, only worth uh, you know, 20 billion, 20 billion is still enough to be able to afford to, to, to buy an election if elections can be bought. So let's prevent elections from being bought. Likewise, the um, I think there is a, a legitimate concern about uh, about poverty, about um, the uh, gains by the l- lower half of the income distribution. They're not the same as reducing inequality, because you can always reduce inequality by making rich people poorer. That doesn't necessarily make poor people richer. Uh, and we know that in cases such as the uh, economic rise of China, Hundreds of millions of people rose out of extreme poverty, not because income was redistributed from a bunch of rich people who lived in Maoist China, but because uh, all this wealth was created. So they're not the same problem. And I think the moral imperative of reducing poverty, of seeing income gains uh, among people who aren't rich, which I I agree is an essential problem, uh, shouldn't be confused with reducing the gap. Uh, In the same way that the problem of solving uh, plutocracy and uh, uh, electoral influence by the rich is not the same as making the rich less rich. Mm-hmm. We have a question from the audience. Someone wants to know, what would a dystopian future look like to you? Oh, there could be a, a lot of them, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> there, there, there's so many ways for things to go wrong. So what's, uh, what's well, maybe, maybe what's the one you fear the most? Uh, well, uh, climate change could be pretty dystopian. Um, if it resulted in uh, sea levels rising by uh, 10 feet, or, or in some scenarios, if uh, uh, the northern hemisphere turned into Siberia because the, uh, the, the Gulf Stream and other 
uh, warm currents were disrupted by the melting of uh, ice on um, uh, Greenland. Um, nuclear war, uh, I, I think, is unlikely, but it's um, not astronomically unlikely. And if it did occur, the, uh, the, the results could be catastrophic. Uh, there's always, um, if the trend toward uh, authoritarian populism gained momentum uh, all over the world, then there could be a uh, reversal of uh, the forms of progress that, that, uh, that, that we can document now, because progress doesn't happen by magic, it happens by particular policies, and if those policies are undone, then countries can go backward. Uh, and we know that countries can go backward. Venezuela went backward. Uh, uh, during World War II, the whole world went backward. Mm -hmm. Another question from the audience about uh, human intelligence. Um, the question is, given that intelligence has a heritable component and intelligence is negatively correlated with fertility, does this represent a challenge to more enlightenment in the future? Might, might ask you first about the premise of the question. What, what do you think? Well, it, it's certainly true that uh, intelligence has a high heritable component. Um, about half of the variation in intelligence within a society um, it can be explained by variation in genes. Now, that doesn't mean half of your intelligence is genetic. That's not even a meaningful concept. We don't know how to measure uh, or divide up a single person's intelligence, but we can look at differences among people. Uh, and, um, but half, of course, is not all. And there are some kinds of intelligence that, um, to everyone's surprise, turned out to be um, environmentally modifiable in a way that, that's slightly different from the uh, raw brain power that seems to be genetically influenced. In particular, the Flynn effect that I mentioned earlier this evening is, turns out not to be the same as sheer brain power. There hasn't been an increase, say, just in the ability to uh, repeat back a string of digits backwards, uh, for example, or, or to do mental arithmetic. Um, but there is, there are, uh, particularly when it comes to the kinds of intelligence that we call uh, enlightened, which does not consist of being able to re repeat back digits backwards, and that's generally not what we mean by enlightenment, but rather the ability to think abstractly, to see relationships among things as opposed to being stuck with concrete details. That actually is the component of intelligence that has um, increased in the Flynn effect that probably is driven by education and by the trickle-down of technical concepts into everyday conversation. Uh, that, that is a part that is uh, clearly not genetic because no genetic change could have uh, resulted in 30 IQ points increasing in a, in a century. Mm. And so that component, which is the component that's closest to enlightenment, is uh, environmentally uh, driven. Uh, again, it doesn't negate the idea that, that a lot of the variation in intelligence is, is genetically um, mm. driven, but it's not the same as the part that we associate with enlightenment. Yeah, and I think the questioner was, I think, uh, concerned that the people who are more likely to become enlightened adults are, are not having as many children as the people who are less likely to embrace Yes, yeah, so this is a, um, a politically incendiary uh, hypothesis. Uh, <laughs> doesn't mean that it's wrong. Uh, it just means that uh, you're not going to get uh, the majority of academics studying it in detail anytime soon. There are some, uh, <laughs> well there said, are some, well some rogues and renegades. Um, but just to um, put... Uh, uh, to, to put it in, into perspective, we don't know how, for how long that correlation is going to be in place, because in general, 
birth rates uh, plummet in educated societies, and educated, wealthy, and um, egalitarian, gender egalitarian societies. When people go to school, when they move to cities, when they get richer, and when women have more control over their lives, birth rates plummet. And when birth rates plummet, they're going to plummet for people of uh, uh, all over the IQ spectrum. Uh, and the, even that dysgenic hypothesis that the question uh, pertained to may no longer be, uh, be true. Uh, now, there can be other problems in having very low birth rates, such as what's happening in Japan, for example, or in, in uh, Italy, but it isn't the problem of um, less bright people having too many babies. A mm. couple more questions for you. Um, you've described yourself as a possibilist. I, I stole the word from uh, Hans Rosling, yes. Yeah. Um, so I was wondering, is there a particular problem that human civilization faces now that you are a possibilist about, that you think it might be solved um, maybe within your lifetime or within your, your children's or grandchildren's lifetime? Well, the, uh, since, since I think the most pressing problem is, cl is climate change, um, I, I do think it's solvable. This is not a prediction that it will be solved. We're currently not on track to solve it, uh, but, but, but I think it, it can be done with, uh, a, um, with a combination of policy, uh, such as carbon pricing, although that policy has to be done with uh, more, uh, let's say, savoir-faire than uh, Emmanuel Macron did it. Uh, <laughs> Uh, otherwise, people will put on yellow vests and start spraying graffiti on the, uh, the Arc de Triomphe, or our, our equivalent, start burning cars. Uh, there has to be, I mean, the most recent uh, proposal by a kind of dream team of economists uh, proposed that the dividend from the carbon tax be redistributed as a lump sum. Uh, since a lump sum means more to poor people than to rich people. It would mean that the people who uh, would suffer from a carbon tax by having to pay more for gasoline would still come out richer with the dividend coming back from the government, because everyone's gasoline tax would get um, factored into their lump sum payment, and so they would come out ahead. If you have a carbon tax uh, that, that hit people who live in the uh, country where they can't take the subway, uh, they can't walk to work. They're stuck in their cars, and a carbon tax just means that they're poorer, then naturally there'll be opposition. So anyway, there has to be policy that is sensitive to the regressive nature of any sales tax. And I think there has to be investment of um, zero-carbon energy technology, including not decommissioning the nuclear power plants that we have, and perhaps embarking on a program such as the ones that France and South Korea uh, undertook in the uh, 70s and 80s of a, a pretty massive build-out of nuclear power. Uh, this is an argument made by Joshua Goldstein and Stefan Kvist in their new book. It just came out last week called A Bright Future, How Some Countries Have Solved Carbon Change and Others Can Follow. But then, uh, and then switching to perhaps newer technologies such as fourth-generation nuclear power, small modular reactors that are far less expensive, forms of storage of the intermittent energy from renewables like um, solar and wind, and then eventually in, in um, negative carbon technologies, because even if we stopped adding greenhouse gases to the atmosphere, the CO2 that's already there is going to continue to warm the planet. And taking it out will partly require the good old-fashioned method of uh, growing trees, 
that's the ultimate carbon capture technology, but perhaps others that will either suck CO2 out of smokestacks at the point at which they are combusted, or in, possibly, this is more in the, toward the science fiction end of the, of the continuum, of actually sucking out of, out of the atmosphere directly. But anyway, all of these, I think, need to be pursued because we just don't know which, one, which combination will work the best. Mm -hmm. So as we go forth and ponder these ideas of enlightenment that you've put forth in this book, what reading, recommend, what reading recommendations would you have for us uh, as far as reading maybe the, the original thinkers of the enlightenment? Any, any books we should go to our library oh. and pick up? Well, um, you know, a, lo a lot of them are uh, were also uh, were, uh, terrific writers. Adam Smith, uh, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Paine, uh, Voltaire. Um, the uh, David Hume, uh, all, all of them were, were uh, quite, quite lively writers. Um, there are prob probably others that I haven't uh, uh, mentioned. Uh, and there are also modern um, uh, advocates of Enlightenment thinking. So, um, one of my favorites is David Deutsch, a computer scientist at Oxford in a book called The Beginning of Infinity. Um, the uh, literature of people who call themselves humanists, like um, uh, Anthony Grayling and um, my other half, uh, Rebecca Goldstein, uh, and um, uh, humanism being a kind of modern version of um, Enlightenment thinking. But then also to be more in touch with the empirical side of Enlightenment, namely progress, um, websites like ourworldindata.org and humanprogress.org, Gapminder, uh, from the uh, from Hans and uh, Ola and Anna Ro Rosling, are just ways of getting consuming information about the world that doesn't consist of headlines about the worst things that are happening anywhere on the planet, but rather something closer to a dashboard of the world. How how we're doing now, how uh, we're doing now compared to how we were doing uh, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago. Hmm. Well, Stephen Pinker, thank you very much for speaking with me. Thanks for having me. This has been a great conversation. And thanks for all of you. That's Steven Pinker, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for Writers on a New England Stage, a co-production of New Hampshire Public Radio and the Music Hall. The executive producer and live stage presentation director is Patricia Lynch. Producer and literary coordinator is Brittany Wasson. The live sound and recording and mixing engineer is Ian Martin. Bob Lord and Dreadnought provide live music. Broadcast producer is Ellen Grimm and Sarah Plurit. Music Hall production manager is Jana Morris. Photos from the event by David J. Murray are posted online at clearifoto.com. I'm Peter Biello, and this has been a special broadcast from New Hampshire Public Radio.